from Ski Tracks, it's the show people talk about. It's Talking with the Gravy Train, your source for Nordic news and one-on-one interviews with current Nordic skiing newsmakers of the day. Sometimes we'll look back and share the rich history of the sport, and sometimes we'll be engaged in the current topic of the day. And now, here's your host, longtime Olympic announcer, Peter Graves. Hello again, everybody. It's another edition of Talking with the Gravy Train. I'm Peter Graves. We have a very special guest with us who just had an extremely uh, a special, special time last weekend in Quebec. That, of course, is Alex Harvey. Alex, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you, there's so much to talk about with you, but uh, you had a big crowd up there watching on the Plains of Abraham, a lot of them, of course, came out to cheer you on in your final World Cup races. What was the atmosphere like for you in Quebec City? Oh, it was crazy. I mean, I had so much support from the crowd. It was great to see all all those Canadians and Americans uh, coming up in, in big numbers to, to support the, the North Americans as a whole. So, yeah, it was just really special for me to and i think same for all the north americans to just get the opportunity to to race here in north america and then of course for me being really in my my hometown where i i was born and where i'm I'm studying and training and everything so it was yeah really special and uh, i really felt that the crowd uh, helped me a lot especially on the the race on saturday uh, the mass start I've, I've never felt something quite like that in a race before. So uh, the crowd played a, a big, uh, big role in the, in the result I was able to, to get at the end of the day there on, on Saturday. Yeah. And, and two second places. Uh, what a way to go out, Alex. I mean, those are extraordinary races. You must be very proud of that. Hey, I was really delighted with, with that. I mean, it's been kind of a, a tougher season for me this year, other than the really highlight, before Christmas, the podium in, in Lillehammer in, in December. Been kind of uh, disappointed with the result, but especially just the way I felt in skiing. I could never really find my groove. And- I know, judging from your reaction, and it's very understandable, these were very emotional World Cups as well for you. Yeah, I don't know, for sure. I mean, yeah, the opportunity for me to the race at home was, was huge, and to really finish it off here was, was just a big opportunity. And then I really wanted to to leave something special for the crowd. I knew I expected big crowds because we've had such good uh, turnouts in both 2016 and 2017. So I really wanted to give some fun, you know, to the spectators and uh, give them some excitement, some enjoyment. So I really, I really wanted to, to kind of deliver for them. Uh, but at the same time, it was kind of hard for me to really believe in it uh, the first couple of days leading up to the races just because of, of all, all kind of, hard the season has been for me so I it was hard for me to really head into the weekend fully believing I was going to fight for the podium but uh, I was trying to just, to just like push back the negative thoughts and just focus on the positive so uh, yeah I was just really happy on Saturday especially it was a really emotional moment for me to, to finish second on the podium there and uh, after yeah, kind of a, a lot of struggles in, in the previous month it felt like almost a relief uh, for me to be able to, to get it done at home like that for one last time. So yeah, it was really, really special. And then Alex, uh, 48 hours later, you were decorated with a meritorious service cross, a high civil distinction. Um, that must have also felt like a great honor. 
Oh, it was, it was. We, yeah, I flew to, went to Ottawa with, with my agent and we had a, a good day there with the uh, Governor General of, of Canada who happens to actually love cross-country skiing. She cross-countries a lot, she cross-country skis a lot and uh, she's, yeah, she loved it. So it was, we, I could talk with her a little bit and that was a really big honor for me. I was surrounded by surgeons and firefighters and volunteers, people who've would accomplish great things for their peers. And uh, so for me to be among that crowd was uh, was just a tremendous honor. Oh, congratulations for that. That is really wonderful. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. I was very interested in the first-person story you did uh, for CBC uh, and yeah, the issue, yeah. issues you recovered. Uh, it was extremely well-written and very, very thoughtful. Um, you said now was the right time to retire. How did you know yeah. it was the right time, Alex? Uh, well, I've, I've been so lucky in my career to be surrounded by, by, at first they were just teammates, but then over time they became my best friends and became a second family for me. So from 2008 to 2009 and learning to, to live on the road and to spend Christmas in Europe uh, year after year and to, to spend a lot of time, like countless hours training along great teammates. So yeah, we became my best friends. I, I was really lucky to live that. But this year, a lot of those, those athletes uh, retired right after the Olympic Games. So this year, I felt like I was a bit more on my own, both at training camps and around the World Cup races. So it was much harder for me to to really stay happy with uh, you know keep living a happy life uh, outside of outside of skiing because we're on the road so much. I haven't spent Christmas at home since 2009, and yeah. those kind of things kind of get old. So I really felt like this year was a, a hard year for me, even though I enjoyed every every second of it. But I I felt like it took a lot of the kind of the mental health buffer that I had. Sure. I felt like I was kind of worn out at the end of the season and it was kind of the right, for me, it was the right decision. And then, and got a good, I got a lot of exciting stuff coming up in the next few months, next years. I'm not getting married in June. Oh, I'm congratulations. Gonna my, I'm going to finish my law degree. I got four classes to go um, and then enter bar, the, write the bar, bar exam and do all these things. So I got a lot of new challenges coming up for me, and I'm really excited for that. So I, I think that the timing is, is just perfect. And then, of course, the opportunity to, to finish it off at home, not only in my home country, but, like, in my hometown, uh, that that was just the timing was perfect. Yeah, I mean, you look at your career. You were racing on World Cup uh, in 2008 as a junior. Uh, then uh, from 2010 on, you've been racing – very steadily, of course, and uh, that takes its toll. It's for all of these elite athletes, you or Jesse Diggins or Keegan or whoever it might be, it's not by any means all glamour on the road. No, no, not at all. I mean, of course, with Instagram and all the social media, we're going to post <laughs> the good-looking pictures of the nice hotel and the mountains <laughs> with the wind because, of course, we want to show – show what's what's cool and fun about our sport but there's a lot of times where you're st- staying in you know and maybe not not a such a <laughs> fancy hotel and struggling a bit to find all the right nutrients uh, in in the in the food that's being served to you and also just a little simple thing but just finding a way to wash your clothes on the road can, sure. can become a big challenge um and so there's just and of course you're just so far away from 
from your loved ones for very long periods of time, like very long un- uninterrupted periods of time, and that that takes its toll on uh, on the long run. So yeah. uh, usually, you know, we leave leave for Europe early in November, and we don't come home till the end of the the end of March. So that's four or five months on the road, and then on top of that, we have a couple. We have a few training camps over the summer that are two, three weeks long each. So, uh, it's, of course, we spend less time, less than half the year at home. So more than half of the year, we're on the road away in our duffel bags. And uh, it's, it's fun when you have a lot of really fun teammates to, to hang out with. But it's still it, it, it's the hardest part of, the, of our job, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I was also struck uh, by several other things in your CBC piece. One was the uh, uh, talk about uh, your your father Pierre, who is a good friend of mine, and and uh, that you had rather parallel careers. And then I want to talk a little bit about the subject of doping, which you certainly had to face. Uh, competitors who were doing that in your career. Uh, yeah, speak to me about the parallels you see between your dad's career and your own. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels we can draw with between our two careers, but we we were both cyclists and, and skiers, so that's, that's the first one, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I think when you start looking at things, it just it's overwhelming the amount of things that are similar. We both won our first World Cup in Falun, hmm. uh, Sweden. 25 years apart. Wow. Uh, we've both won in, in Oslo. Uh, we've, and we've both ended our career uh, at 30 years old. So those are just a, a few little things that kind of make it uh, kind of funny. In one sense that um, for most, for the first stages of my career, I've been trying to kind of shape my own path and kind of, of course, I've always been proud of my dad, but I wanted to be Alex, not the son of mm-hmm. here. Uh, and at the end of the day, you just look at it and you're like, you know what? You can't really, we, you can't really tell us apart so much because <laughs> we've had so many. There's been so many similarities in, in our career, and of course, I think one of the big ones is, is we both had to, to deal to fight against peers who, who were cheating. And the, the sad thing is, it's still there, you know, 30 years later, and it's been it was there before his time, and I do believe it's going to be there after my time. So that's. That's maybe the, the saddest thing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I remember uh, when your dad re- uh, retired. I mean, he, he just, he was so frustrated with uh, some of the issues of doping that just sort of wore him down after time. And, and uh, I mean, uh, we still see it today, don't we? Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, of course, everybody saw it with, in Seyfeld. Uh, it was pretty graphic. Yes, it was. Photo of- of that Austrian guy, Max Auke, with uh, a needle uh, in his vein and attempting to do blood, you know, blood transfusion. That was, I mean, I've read about these kind of things in Tyler Hamilton's book and other things. And it just, of course, you can try to picture it in your head, but it's nothing quite like seeing a video of a guy actually doing it. It was sickening to me. And it was just a, and, and for me, I think the worst in that case was that he's not even that good of a skier. Yes. To see that people mid-pack are actually cheating like that, it really made me realize that it's even more, more. Uh, it happens more than maybe what I thought. You know, there's more of it than maybe what I thought. So, of course, Paul Tarainen, I'd say there were a lot of doubts surrounding him for most of his career. But to see guys that are not even good skiers right. doing it, 
is is extremely sad and it's a bad thing for the sport. And the other thing is that it took for a police investigation, so an actual criminal investigation to to stop these guys, to bust these guys. Uh, so it kind of shows that the system is it's not working. It's not good enough right now. Yeah, the WADA and, and Smith and all the anti-doping agencies. It's not good enough. They're, they're not being. They're not able to to catch. Uh, catch the dopers and that's that's really sad and it's i mean it's not the police job to to stop people from from doping it's, for them it's to stop you know murderers and thieves <laughs> yeah. and things like that but if they if it takes for for them to stop dopers i, I think it shows that the system is, is not working so yeah i mean training. a sport that you and i know a lot about cycling of course i mean the police too have been the uh, biggest policemen of that uh, Operation Porto uh, a few years ago in cycling, it's no, the it's the police yeah, departments that come in. Do yeah. you do you have a yeah. sense of uh, what could be improved, Alex, or is it simply too complicated for a short telephone call here? Well, I think there's a lot of things that could be done, but overall, I think I'm not 100 percent sure if if the top federation the 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 head, if they want to get everybody caught for doping, I think it makes the sport look too bad. It's too big for the marketing. For the, it, it makes the sport look bad. So you're, you're, uh, you might lose sponsors. You might lose. You know, there's big money involved, and I think it goes. I, I think it starts with the very top. They're really wanting to keep things clean and and not not accepting anything. Uh, but other than, other than that, I, I think that you see. The reason why it was the police who was able to, to raid the, the Austrians and the Estonians and the Kazakhs and, and Austria is because in that country, it, it's illegal. It's considered a, a criminal act because it's it's uh, it's fraud, and uh, it's so. I think maybe if if some nations can can make it legal, I know it's illegal in Italy as well. So then then maybe you give some tools to to crown attorneys and and policemen to, to really you know, chase those guys. So those guys are not only facing being banned from, from skiing, but they're facing actual jail time, jail time for, for fraud. So then maybe at least it sends a message that it's not okay to do it and, and uh, the consequences can be bigger than just losing a couple podiums, couple statistics. Uh, it, it's, it's way bigger than that. So I don't know, but I, I clearly right now I don't think it's enough. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. And, uh, it's it is in to say the least it's troubling. Um, so from that, I I I want to segue to what do you consider? I mean, you've you've had a world title, uh, your fifty k in Lati. Uh, what do you do? You have one race that, to your mind, was your crowning achievement. Well, I think on on a Sports level, of course, I think being world champion in, in the 50K in Lati in, in 2017 was my biggest sport accomplishment on, on paper, for sure. But for me, on a personal level, I, I really come back to last Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before that, it was it was the win I've had in front of my home crowd in, in 2017 in the sprint, just because those were such emotional moments for me. So special to be really to able to be able to live that in front of all my friends, all my family. Of course, with all my teammates around me, uh, my coaches, the staff, people who helped me over the summer, uh, the club, the local clubs, uh, fans, it was just so special. So there's kind of two ways to see to look at it. They're, they're not the biggest uh, sport accomplishment because it's, it's a regular World Cup, but for me on a personal level, 
being able to win at home and then to finish on the podium against again last week and those are just so special for me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. And what perhaps was your greatest disappointment in a ski race? Your fourth place? That... Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I yeah. mean, I think after a few weeks, I was able to appreciate it, but it was still being fourth in, in Pyeongchang in the 50K. Uh, and, you know, the year after being world champion in the 50K, that, that was extremely hard for me. But, but, of course, because fourth is just the most bitter position you can end up, of course. Yes. But also because all the things that happened following the, the McLaren report and, and all the all the noise uh, surrounding Russian and state-sponsored doping in Sochi and years before that, and then Russians being banned from the games, but then some of them being allowed, and then me coming forth with two Russians ahead of me yeah. on the podium, not one, but two. For me, it was just really hard to accept accept that. Uh, I'm sure. But, but at the end, after a few weeks, I was able to reflect on it and really appreciate my performance, Alex Harvey's performance, and I do believe still to this day it was one of my top three best ski race ever in terms of, of, of Alex Harvey's performance. And to be able to have that at the Olympic Games, for me, that's I can't ask much more of that. So I, I'm still really proud of that race, but of course it was, it was at the same time, it was the biggest disappointment of, of my career. Sure, and, and I understand that. One of the things you said as a tribute to both your mom and dad, you said you were born into the right family. I think that's really yeah. true. You want to say something about that? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, growing up in, in Mont saint Tom, I remember uh, coming home in the school bus, coming home from school and kind of rushing to finish homework on the bus so I could kind of show uh, – we had a we had a, a nanny at home, so I could show her that uh, my my homework was done, and if it was properly done, I was allowed to go ski. I, we didn't need a car ride or anything. We could I would just cross the street and strap on the skis, and you know, click click my my boots and my bindings, and just go for a, a forty five minute ski or whatever with, with the headlamp before dinner. And so that 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 area where I grew up was just so much proximity to to all the ski trails and, and mountain biking trails in the summer and all the neighbors were, were there for they chose to they choose to live here because they want to be in nature and they want to have access to, to to all those trails. And my family was I was always super important for my parents that me and my two sisters were really active. We enjoyed sport. But at the same time they never put any pressure on us to to start doing competition or to keep doing competition or to be better at competition. They, they supported us, but they never pushed us towards it, towards competition. It was just, just a matter of, of being healthy, being happy with doing sports. And then if we wanted to be athletes and make a career out of it, it was our call. So that, that I'm really grateful for. Yeah, indeed. So, and they understood the sport. Alex, do you recall the first time you were ever on skis? I think I was too young for that. I think I was two or three years old. So I hear the stories that I would, yeah, I would ski for five, maybe 10 minutes. And then uh, my dad would, would put me back in the baby glider and my little sleeping bag. And then I would fall asleep within five minutes. And him and, and my mom could kind of keep keep doing their ski loop. Uh, and over time, I started to ski a bit more and a bit more. And, and of course, by the end, I, I could, you know, do maybe a full hour. But, but it took... It was really progressive, but I don't. I do not recall it. Like personally, it's been told to me, but I was too young <laughs> to have the memory in my head. Yeah. 
All right. Well, maybe approaching the final question here. Uh, with your retirement, and there there have been in the last uh, 12 months quite a few changes with Cross Country Canada, including a uh, new name, a new branding campaign. Uh, what do you see is the future of Canadian cross-country skiing? Well, I, I think we have a couple really talented athletes. We've seen Rémi Drolet this year uh, being top 10 in World Juniors with one more year to go in the category. Last last season, uh, Antoine Sale was 13th, and he's, he's really pr- promising uh, young senior now. And so I think we have a few, and there's there's other guys and girls who, who, who are, are have done really well. So I think there's promise. There's promising talent, but we got to make sure we we find a, a good way to to nourish that talent and, and to develop it and, and really be patient. I mean, uh, cross-country skiing is a slow development sport, and you can't expect skiers that are 19, 20, 21, 22. Really, anybody at below the age of 25, you got to be really patient with. And then at 25, you can sit down and have a more clear picture of if you're going to make it or not. But until that age, I do believe that there's still always going to be a chance to, to have a, a big improvement here. And so you got to, I think people have to stay the course and then the, the system has to, to trust our young skiers and, and really find a way to nourish their talents to, to, to develop new skiers. So I think there's going to be a big shift towards development. And I'm not sure that we're going to see Canadians att- attending every single World Cup event next year, but I think more picking, picking uh, key events and uh, maybe racing in Europe, but on on kind of a bit of a lower level than the World Cup. So maybe the Opal Cup or or the Scandinavian Cup. Uh, so use use those tools as, as development for our athletes. But I think the key word for me is, is patience. Yeah. Got to be patient and and uh, really empower those athletes to, to become what they deserve to be. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so often I think uh, these systems find really talented young people and uh, everybody's so desperate for results. They push them pretty hard pretty early sometimes. And I've always favored the nurturing effect over uh, uh, many years. Yeah, I think so. And really, when you when you look at, at the numbers, of course, Russia, Norway, they have huge numbers at, at their national championships and things like that. But after that, even in Sweden and, and countries have been so successful, especially on the men's side, I'm thinking of France. They don't have more skiers than us at their national championship, not even in Sweden anymore. So we do have the numbers in Canada uh, in terms of, of 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And then at one point, they just – they don't make the next step. They don't make the jump to, to being good young seniors and then good older seniors. So I don't think the problem is the number because we hear all time and time again that we don't have the depth, we don't have the numbers, but that's false. Russia, Norway, that's its own thing. But Sweden, they're pretty damn good at skiing. Yes. France, I mean, Switzerland, of course, our, our neighbors to the south, U.S., you guys are killing it. But, but we, we, Canada is not too far off, and, and we do have a lot of skiers in national championships. So we've got to, people have to be better in the system uh, at developing athletes because there's no excuse for that. We have a lot of snow everywhere in the country, and then we just got to do a better job developing athletes. And we can't hide behind saying we don't have the numbers because that's simply not true. Yeah. It's not true. So I think people have to be better at, at being patient and, and going, it, going at it one step at a time. You um, even look at, I mean, I have some 
good times on, on the Norwegian national ski team. Emil Iversen was self-proclaimed the worst skier in Norway when he was 20 years old. And look at him now. He's a prolific skier, two gold medals at the World Championship this year, and he's a key key member of, of the Norwegian ski team. And the people around him were patient, and they gave him a chance to, to succeed. And I think we have to be like that in Canada. Yeah. And finally, uh, so uh, you're you're close to finishing up your law degree, which seems to indicate you would plan some sort of a, ter- uh, a career around being a, an attorney and law. Do you see uh, any kind of return to skiing as a coach or or maybe as an agent for athletes or anything like that? I'd like to stay involved in sports for sure. I don't think I would be. I would be the best coach. I, I do believe that sometimes the best coach are the ones who maybe didn't make it to the very top. They, the ones that have been in sports, of course, but had a bit more of a struggle. So, I, and, and I, of course, I one of the main reasons why I'm retiring is, is all the traveling. So I wouldn't, I don't want to start another career like that. So, but I'll stay involved. I'll, I'll try to be a bit of a mentor to the local skiers, especially in Quebec, because that's where I'll be, and, and especially try to share my, my knowledge of the sport and share ideas that we can, that can uh, take shape in terms of development and, and try to find new ways to, to develop athletes and uh, help, help as much as I can, but not, not in the form of, of, of a coach. So my, the plan for me is yeah to finish, finish uh, school and, and, and become a lawyer. And uh, that's going to be my, my competition for, from that <laughs> one. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Alex, you've always been accessible You've always been a gentleman. You've been an extraordinarily successful world-class athlete. I I simply can say it it is not going to be the same without you, and we will miss you greatly. But the legacy that you created will live forever. So I can't thank you enough for being part of our show today and taking some of your very valuable time to be with us. So thank you, my friend. Uh, thanks for giving me the time. Yeah, okay. Well, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Meantime, all the best to you. Uh, looking forward to what is going to be exciting new chapter of your life. Thank you, Alex Harvey, so much. All right, thanks. All right, that's Alex Harvey talking with us exclusively. I'm Peter Graves. Thanks for listening.